Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Freya India, a writer, particularly of the amazing Substack Girls, where Freya writes about issues affecting girls and young women. We spoke about a whole host of those today, uh, and particularly how the lives of young women are so enmeshed with online culture. So we spoke about the glamorization of antidepressants, of uh, therapy culture, the bizarre plastic surgery trends that have been triggered by social media, um, the ways in which young women are simultaneously made miserable by the internet and then sold supposedly the solutions to their misery again by the internet um, and various you know perverse phenomena. Why is buccal fat removal suddenly so fashionable? Why is Kim Kardashian um, followed by so many millions of young women and girls? Um, the extended version of the episode can be found at louiseperry.substack.com where as ever you can also find uh, the bonus episodes I do fortnightly with my husband, the back catalogue of all of our extended episodes, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Before we start the episode, I want to briefly tell you about two things. Firstly, we'll be hosting a second Maiden Mother matchmaking event on the evening of February 19th at James Chavarini's justly famous Il Palombe restaurant in central London. Everyone there will be there because they are looking to find a spouse. If you're interested in applying for a ticket, then head over to louiseperry.substack.com or follow the link in the show notes for more details. Secondly, many of you will know that Christianity is a subject of fascination for me and the role of Christianity in shaping the modern world is a theme I return to again and again on the podcast. My view is that we can't really understand ourselves or understand the world around us without getting to grips with it, which is why I'm very glad to put you towards a new online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, thoughtful, engaging. It assumes absolutely no prior knowledge. It's presented by the wonderful Glenn Scrivener, who has been a guest on the MMM podcast previously, and I've also been a guest on his show. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are based around some beautiful animated stories that illustrate the Christian message. You can check it out for free at 321course.com forward slash MMM. Just enter your email, choose a password and you're in. There's no spam, there's no fees, just visit 321course.com forward slash MMM. Freya, you have introduced me to a term um, that I was not aware of, but you've you've done the hard work so the listeners don't have to and, and um, delved into TikTok and Instagram and all the worst um, parts of social media and come back with the phrase hot girl pills. Yes. <laughs> what are hot girl pills <laughs> for the boys and girls listening at home? There's hot girl pills. There's also silly girl pills as well. Uh, hot girl pills are basically a way to describe your antidepressants or your mental health medication. Um, if you go on TikTok, hashtag medication, you will see not only girls calling them hot girl pills and silly girl pills, but putting them in, putting their SSRIs in like sweets dispensers, making advent calendars, of their different mental health medication. That's why I shouldn't laugh. And it's <laughs> <No>. funny. <laughs> yeah. It's become such kind of a core part of people's identity. Um and I, I do get it to an extent because I get if you're struggling with your mental health, you know, to trivialize it and make it lighthearted might help. Mm. But when you go on and you see the, these posts are getting millions of views. Um, and we know that like a third of TikTok users are under 14. So they're seeing 
medication glamorized. It was that high. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I mean, because it's not just sort of, it's not just uh, having a bit of fun by putting your pills in an advent calendar. It's, it's then, it's then photographing or video, videoing that and putting, putting it on social media, which is a completely different thing to do because yeah. you are, yeah. I mean, it feels like, I, I know you wrote a fab essay on your Substack recently um, about um, this phenomenon of normalizing young women using antidepressants, yeah. but normalizing is all the wrong word because we're so beyond that at this point. Like, oh, I, yeah. the, the idea that we're destigmatizing this just seems mad to me because since when is, is this stigmatized, at least among this generation? Yeah, I, I think actually we've normalized drugs and diagnosis so much that we've stigmatized being a normal human having normal yeah. adolescent girl emotions. And yeah, a lot of it is done under the guise of kind of mental health awareness. So a lot of these posts by the girls themselves, but also if you look at say mental health influencers, like there's a trend called hashtag post your pill, which the um, doctor from Love Island started. I don't know if you know him, but he, he basically posted a picture of his mental health medication sticking his tongue out with the pill on his tongue. Um, and got loads of people, millions of people to do the same, which was for mental health awareness. But you go on the hashtag and it just looks like um, complete glamorization of it, normalization of it. And, you know, people saying things like, my pill helps me become um, confident. It, it helps me be like a badass. Um, and if you're 14 and you're scrolling through that, you're going to think then, I need to have that medication or I want to jump on the trend. Um, so I think it's really worrying for young girls, especially who are, you know, seeking attention online. That's a great way to get it. Um, and, you know, these are serious medications. They're nothing trivial. I mean, the funny thing is, right, who would put a, the whole claim is that this is stigmatized and looking yeah. and brave, but like who would, put a photo of themselves exactly. taking their anti-diarrhea medication or something like that <laughs> yeah. on social media like no. uh, there'll be a lot less clout available uh, clearly what's yeah. actually going on is that there is something glamorous and desirable about mental illness um probably not really full-blown I mean um there's that 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 quite famous essay from um years ago now from um uh who's that Guardian writer Hannah Oh, I can't remember her name. It'll come to me once I stop thinking about it. But she wrote this really good essay many years ago about the fact that she has mental illness, but not not the Instagram kind. Yeah, you know, she has like psychosis, yeah, and mania that leaves her like having sex with terrible people and spending all her money, and like actually the kind of mental illness that completely destroys her life. Yeah, this is not that. This is not what girls want. Yeah, yes, no. The perfect, like the perfect spot is is i guess relatively mild depression and anxiety yeah yeah and maybe a a mild eating disorder yeah there's like a line where um well i I was looking recently at therapy companies how they advertise to young girls because it's predominantly girls and young women that they're kind of targeting clearly through the advertising Mm. and they were there was one ad where they paid an influencer to say or do you have um big girl depression or sad girl summer or something mm-hmm. and it's like okay so we're not talking about mental illness then we're talking about sadness um but i think i think girls and young women have always been drawn to like the glamorizing of something dark and depressing i i remember that when i was younger um like kind of goth and emo stages now i feel like it's become 
mental illness. But the problem with that is it can lead you on a conveyor belt to medication, um, which has insane side effects and risks. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not a trivial thing for, for young people to be glamorizing. I think as well, the other downside of being drawn to medication, aside from the side effects, which I do want to talk about because those are important, yeah. is um, it doesn't actually solve your problems because <laughs> most most antidepressant medication doesn't do very much. Like it's fairly similar to um, placebo. Um, and it, what's very likely to be going on is actually it's not that you have a biochemical imbalance, which is, I mean, it's kind of the jury's out on whether that's true in some cases, but in very many cases, it's not that you're talking about a biochemical imbalance, it's that you're talking about some something bad in your life, which it might not be possible to solve it. It might be out of your control, but it also might be. It might be like you're using screens too much or like you have a horrible boyfriend or like any number of things which could you could solve but taking a pill is definitely not going to solve. And that's why it's not stigma, because the the chemical imbalance theory of mental health has never been definitively proven. And like you said, there's little difference between SSRIs and placebo for treating depression. So it's kind of insane that you go on TikTok and these girls are utterly convinced it's a chemical imbalance. You know, there's girls on there saying things like, um, oh, sometimes I think about if I could have a normal life, you know, I'll be like this forever. It's very kind of fatalistic, you know, this this is how I'm wired. And I don't understand how that has translated from such uh, you know, ongoing debates about the research. So to call it stigma is just insane. It's the absolute uh, opposite. It's clearly in the interest of a lot of pharmaceutical companies to push this narrative. Yeah. In terms of actual doctors um, and other mental health professionals, the least people I've spoken to tend to have a more nuanced and sensible position on this. Um, and actually what I've heard from um, uh, one a clinical psychologist friend is that um, it's often patients actually who are desperate for the drugs. And it's doctors who will kind of reluctantly give them to them and say, look, it's more complex, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, one, it's because of exactly what you were talking about, the glamorization, the fact that it's, it's, it's a, a product being pushed. But also I think that people who are sad the idea that you could just have a pill it's very comforting and yeah it's so comforting because imagine being able to solve your problem so swiftly and oh, put God, it in a yeah. little, you know candy yeah imagine like being able to fix like the stress of being an adolescent girl i mean it's horrible yeah. <laughs> i would have loved the pill <laughs> yes take. um yeah yeah and I, I mean if you look at reddit there's all of these kind of preteen teen girls um, and guys as well but mostly girls and young women talking about like telling each other scripts of how you can get medication. So if you want to get onto an antidepressant, these are the words you need to say to your doctor. This is what you need to say, the symptoms you've had. So yeah, it's a real push from patients to want to get medication. Um, and I think that's because they've been convinced that to see all of their problems in a medical sense. And, you know, like you said, you might have a bad boyfriend or um, your parents are splitting up. And the negative emotion you feel, you think, oh, that's because I, you know, I have chemical imbalance. I haven't paid enough for someone to heal me, which is really bad for kids' resilience. Because if you think you can't get through life without taking a pill or having some kind of intervention, then you're going to think like that forever. You you, you kind of have to face these things head on. Um, but unfortunately, there's so much profit in in pushing it on young people. I've always thought that the um, 
the the interventions for depression and anxiety that actually seem to work um aside from you know leaving a bad boyfriend your parents getting back together whatever it is um are things like exercise um things like spending time with loved ones yeah um being outside all this kind of stuff and it, it always occurs to me that those are basically the components of a very traditional lifestyle yeah yeah even things like sitting around a campfire with like there's actually some evidence that that's you know has it makes an appreciable difference to your um to your feeling of well-being none of this is to say that it's really great being a hunter-gatherer it's clearly very tough being a hunter-gatherer <laughs> yeah, yeah. or a peasant or whatever you know like there are lots and lots of seem to be something um maladaptive about our current very safe very affluent environment that makes people um distressed yeah and those things that you mentioned are all things that don't have to be sold to you as as a product or a service you know you can find them for free <laughs> like a, a meaningful relationship is something you can find outside of the market and um, exercise you can do without paying and so i think that's that's not coming across to young people because they're getting bombarded with targeted ads that are all you know pay for this download this app and you know you need this procedure to feel good about yourself and um i really think we we've lost that kind of simple fixes to things because we think that they're patronizing so if someone's if a girl is sad we think it's patronizing to say you know go out in the sunshine and go for a walk um because people will be like well that's not going to solve my problem but you know the the kind of age-old advice is true um but we're, we're just failing to translate it to young people have you read um isabel hardman's book the natural health Service? no i haven't it's really nice i'd recommend it to everyone listening she writes about politics for the spectator but she also um has writes a bit about mental health and has written this book about it because she has like serious you know not mild depression anxiety she's had very serious um PTSD which um led to her having to um leave work for a long period and she did have all the standard medical interventions the drugs the talking therapies and whatever but the stuff that she found that actually improved her health the most were was the stuff we're talking about the kind yeah. of the trad stuff like um bird watching um running yeah uh gardening like yeah, all so sorts simple. of like like yeah. yeah i have a friend who always says like if you want to work out what the best lifestyle is for like maximizing your well-being look at what rich retired people do yeah yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> people with like maximum one you know years of of like wisdom from being alive but also like maximum time and resources yeah i was gonna say that's like my nan and granddad's lifestyle <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah and all those things are really proven like it's, it's very it's a it's a great book the natural health service because these things really are proven to be beneficial and I started doing cold water swimming because I read that book and it's it, it's incredible it's like a free high that you get that's actually good for you and is well it's not necessarily free in the sense that like you have to go to a lido or get an ice bath or whatever like it's slightly annoying to do it's more annoying than, than like um uh going for a walk um but it really really works like you honestly boost your mood so much and I've I've read data suggesting that it is um much more effective for depression and anxiety, cold water exposure, than is any medication that we know. Really? Oh, I can believe yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah. the other thing as well, there's all of the natural remedies, but the other thing is, is you know, helping other people. And, um, you know, there's so many studies that show that we get this kind of long-term fulfillment from 
helping others and focusing on other people. Yet the narrative now about mental health is focused more and more on yourself. You know, do the work, go inwards, like um, kind of analyze it, ruminate. That is the advice. And it's the worst advice because, you know, I've heard Jordan Peterson describe it as like, there's actually no difference between being mentally ill and obsessing over yourself. Like it's the same thing. The, the more you think about yourself and your worries and your fears, the more you're going to, I would say not for people who are severely mentally ill, but for kids that are anxious and stressed, a lot of the time they could benefit from getting out their own heads and, and things like ice baths, nature walks is all part of that. It's just like, you're not relentlessly thinking about yourself. A standard line that you'll sometimes hear against the medications is to say all the things that we've said already about why taking drugs is, you know, won't solve your problems. There are all these side effects, etc. Um, the better alternative that, that's presented is therapy. Yeah. And I am quite skeptical about so this therapy. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've written about this. Um, what, what do you think are the downsides of that kind of, uh, the therapy culture that's also being pushed? Well, I used to think like, Big Pharma was like a thing that I thought this is terrible, you know, to 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 present this as the the solution to all um, mental health problems is really bad. But then I started to think, well, there's this whole kind of big therapy industry that's developing, especially virtual therapy companies. So yeah. the companies like BetterHelp, Talkspace, yeah. they are just bombarding young people with ads. Uh, well, <laughs> they sponsor every other podcast. Oh my god! Well, because yeah. I did it because I wrote that Substack. I was then now my computer is giving me ads all the time for better help. Mm. Like please leave me alone. But mm. it's all it's kind of really really vague symptoms, um, saying things like you know, do you ever feel stressed or worried, or do you ever need some self care? And what they're advertising is being able to message a therapist twenty four seven from your room. Like that's literally the tagline of one of the companies, which to me is probably the absolute worst thing to give someone who's anxious, fragile and risk averse is to say you can text a therapist all day, every day. It's also, um, I thought, was always considered by psychotherapists, like responsible ones, to be bad because you need to have boundaries. You know, you shouldn't be um, always accessible to your clients. But it seems like it's encouraging yeah, all access. Yeah, also, because it's not like discounted rates and everything. Yeah, because it's nothing. It's not about the patient's well-being. Mm. Uh, like the these companies are using Silicon Valley tactics. They're using the same tactics as Facebook and Instagram because they want to keep you addicted to your screen and on the app and chatting to your therapist. So the incentives are just completely wrong. Um, and I said in the piece, like I do think there's a benefit to genuine therapy for people who especially if you have no one else to turn to and you need kind of an objective opinion that's I agree with that but I think there's so many people in Gen Z who are just normally anxious normally insecure and are just spending ridiculous amount of hours on their screen and then they're being told okay the solution is to sit in front of your screen and talk to a stranger yeah yeah a stranger who doesn't know you and, you know, if you speak to your friends and family, you're putting a burden on them. You're putting like emotional labor onto them. So we've got that narrative as well. I saw this really bleak ad for, um, I think it was BetterHelp or a similar sort of service recently um, on YouTube. And it was 
um, a young woman speaking to camera about how she benefited from it and saying that what she wanted was to sort of tailor make her own therapist. Um, so she was a, a young black American woman and she was saying, you know, I really wanted um, a black woman, you know, like a black older woman. Have you seen this? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I thought what you're, what you want is a mum. Oh God, that's so sad. I was going to say a friend, but a mum is even. No, because it's like an older woman that she specifically wanted and, or like an aunt or something, you know, who, who's you, you, that's what you're basically looking for is like an older female relative except what you want is I mean maybe she doesn't have any available right like to be fair to her but the other thing that the service offers her is um uh optionality and absolutely no commitment so if, if at any moment she's like displeased with this surrogate aunt figure yeah she can just hang up, stop paying for the service yeah yeah well that's that's you know I tried was writing about how I think the demand for therapy is not because we're increasingly mentally ill. I think a lot of it is loneliness. Um, so many young people are lonely. And if you look at the ads, that is what the companies are selling you. I mean, another one of the ads, the, there's a woman talking about she had like um, insomnia and depression. And she said she got a therapist. And she said um, being able to, to text someone about how I feel was life-changing. And I'm like life-changing have anyone yeah like yeah. the fact that that is life-changing and yeah all of the ads are like find someone to talk to um they even say things like a therapist who's like your bestie um and it's just like this is terrible because all the relationships young people are being encouraged to have are like these commodified relationships where people are paid to speak to them um and yeah i think it's just insane that companies are allowed to use that loneliness against us and then leave us in a more lonely position because the therapist is not going to care about you the same that your family or friends are going to care um so it's a really tragic cycle one of the um other reasons i'm skeptical about therapy is that i think that because it's a there are obviously some um some therapists who are, who are who are very professional, very responsible, won't do this. But there is a financial incentive to keep people coming back, and there and one of the one of the things, therefore, that therapists are incentivized to do is not to say anything that will yeah displease a client. Yeah, just affirm everything. Yeah. Yes, I mean, so crucially, not to ever say like maybe you're the asshole, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Yeah, because because no one wants to hear that. Mm -hmm. Is it that Taylor Swift song? I can't is it Taylor Swift? And you listen to the live recording of it and she has this like whole stadium full of young women saying, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm. A oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It always makes me laugh because like, <laughs> who says that? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. such a rare sentiment. And it's particularly accompanied by this sort of online culture that we're discussing yeah. of like, and you know, this hyper-individualist, hyper like um, self-promoting culture, which really actually doesn't leave space for um, maybe I'm making mistakes, maybe I'm treating people badly. You know, it's all about I'm I am the victim of whatever external circumstance, you know, has come my way. And the only thing I can do to solve it is to have um mental health professionals yeah. and prescribing the, things and soothe me. The the therapeutic kind of narrative now is like it's almost like how can I justify my bad behavior in a in a therapeutic way? <laughs> um and I think you know, therapists then come and indulge that and and affirm that. So, you know, 
and as well as you know feminism there's a feminist narrative which is doing the same thing which is kind of saying everything we do is empowering no matter who it affects in your life as long as it's you know your personal desires and autonomy um so young women have two uh narratives coming at them at the same time saying whatever you do can be justified but i think that ultimately does a disservice to young women because um you, you don't want to be told constantly by everyone that your behavior is acceptable because you'll just trash your life um and i think especially for girls that spend so much time online that's all they're hearing is like everything you do is justified everything is okay um and i think girl, girls need some of that discipline that men are craving as well you know we also need to be told like no this behavior is not good and, and i think there's a Maybe real lack the of problem that. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> taylor's right <laughs> she is with um <laughs> this brings us on very nicely to the cheating thing you wrote an essay recently about this trend i yeah. suppose for yeah. women cheating because it's feminist <laughs> yeah so the, it was a um statistic thing since 1990 the number of women admitting to affairs has risen by 40 percent or something um is this admitting to set to the people taking the survey i guess rather than yeah. to their partners yeah i think so so i mm. i don't know how accurate that survey is but it was the way a certain feminist wrote about that statistic where she said basically that was women reclaiming their bodily autonomy um fighting back against patriarchal restrictions and i think she called it a feminist act of self-care to cheat and i just thought well that is the kind of inevitable endpoint of where we're heading you know if we're saying that everything you do um you know for your own personal desires is good and empowering because it makes you feel good then obviously we would end up at that point uh where cheating becomes feminist um but i also thought it was kind of an inevitable end result of consumer capitalism really where we're also growing up with this kind of bombardment of advertisements and this consumer culture that tells us that everything can be upgraded and replaced and we're kind of scrolling through social media treating each other like disposable products um, and i think that's again two things coming together where we just see people as replaceable and young women are being told, you know, that's in some way desirable to see people as disposable because you're like an empowered woman who does what she wants. Um, and I think that's just, it's obviously like a niche example, but I mean, in the article, I was talking about some big mainstream magazines that were saying it. I think it was like Cosmo was saying um, tips for what to do after you cheat. Number one was like, don't tell him. And then women's health was saying why you shouldn't regret an affair. Um, there's also that podcast Call Her Daddy, which is like a feminist podcast. And they sell like cheat on him crop tops. So it's it's not a really obscure opinion. Um, and no, so, also the Times you mentioned. Uh, there was no, a period no. where like every weekend I'd read in the Times something about how women cheating is fab. And I was like, yeah. who's this Who's this senior female lecturer at the Times who's yeah. having an affair? And it's like yeah. endlessly commissioning pe Justify pieces it. to her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought, well, that's just like a perfect example of where we're heading. And, and terrible for young women themselves because, again, it's like, where are the female figures in our culture saying, no, this is this is unacceptable um 
And, and I think women need that. We also need the discipline. Yeah, the justification given is all for the cheating thing is all along the lines of like, it'll make you feel better. It'll like, it's got absolutely nothing to do with either of the men involved. Oh yeah, or children. Sometimes the there's, there's children. No, yeah. Like, and, and they're yeah. still justifying it under the sense of, you know, if I'm happy, the children will be happy. Oh yeah, if it and gives it's... mummy a, a, you know, a spring in her step, yeah. then... Yeah, exactly. It's all worth it. I mean, it's actually incredibly dangerous advice, right? If anyone who like familiar with domestic violence statistics and the association between it's true, female actually. infidelity or su- suspected infidelity and male violence, um, is really high. I mean, it's absolutely not. It's not a safe thing to tell and to advise any woman who has a like unstable boyfriend to do. Obviously, she should leave the unstable boyfriend. Yeah, but to call it but... an act of self care. <laughs> yeah just madness absolute madness yeah yeah but as you say is the logical endpoint of this way of thinking which is odd as well isn't it that simultaneously the the line is um toxic masculinity is extremely bad but also you should aspire to behave like a toxically masculine man yeah as well so why, why right. do you think that is because <sighs> i mean i guess it's they probably I think what they'd say is just it's different from when women do it because it would be in a kind of a oppressor, oppressed hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. And it would be like how, you know, you can be as violent as you like if you're doing it in the name of decolonization, for yes, instance. Yeah. They'd say women, you know, pushing back by cheating, for instance, or being disagreeable. So it's like, um, a, like a vengeance kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And and because women are like necessarily oppressed mm-hmm. in all circumstances that can never be yeah you know yeah, yeah it would it yeah it it fits into all the other frameworks as well like i don't know if you're not white you can't be racist or whatever it's all kind of yeah. the same dichotomy just applied in different circumstances yeah because i've um, been trying to think why that is and and the other thing i thought is like uh in as you talk about in this kind of uh, modern dating market the way to kind of get through it is to be you know as like emotionally detached as possible for, for for women because like otherwise it's really anxiety inducing so I think a lot of it's almost like a defense mechanism like okay I'm gonna cheat on you first before you do it to me or something like that I think also the reason these young women want to be um like hyper masculine in their behavior is because they they think, and I don't think they're wrong about this, that men are higher status than women, that there's there's status attached to being masculine, whereas being feminine, you know, you might be you might be lovable, you might be desirable, but it, you're, you're not sort of, you're not really high status. So I think that they, they have, I mean, I mean and this, I, I've said many times that this is, I think, what like patriarchy in the modern usage of the term actually means. It's not really about women being excluded from positions power and authority it's about masculinity still having a kind of status cachet that femininity doesn't and these young women have spotted that and so they kind of try and imitate men except we know that it's a fairly futile and self-defeating thing to do yeah it's funny because it's there's almost two things happening at once where women are putting on this we're like encouraged to put on this kind of masculine front and be the empowered woman who's kind of emotionally detached and just doesn't feel anything and yet at the same time, we have this therapy culture and there's all these young women who are uh, expressing that they're really fragile and everything makes them anxious and everything makes them depressed. And it's like, 
I don't understand how the two things are happening at the same time. Like we're either really strong and capable or we're not. Um, and I, that's why I think it's a front because, you know, we've got all of these mental health issues. But then we've got a generation of women saying, you know, I'm like a badass bitch. I don't care. I, I'll just treat men how they treat me. It's a weird kind of paradox going on. And never a link drawn between the two things. Like the fact that, I mean, and which is, I think, one of the reasons why the biochemical explanation for mental illness is so attractive, because it doesn't force you to think, oh, actually, maybe there's something wrong with my way that I'm living my life. So you can simultaneously say everything that I'm doing, being being a bitch or whatever, like, yeah, yeah. is great and is um, is good for me and yada, yada. Um, and I also just coincidentally happen to have crippling mental illness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, totally. but that's caused by something else, really. Yeah, no, I actually think, you know, you can use, you know, it's not just feelings of anxiety and depression that they're numbing. It's probably sometimes feelings of guilt and, you know, signs from your body that you're not behaving right or treating people right. And now we're just encouraged to numb that or go to therapy and justify it in some way, like link it to your childhood or something, um, which, yeah, it just becomes a constant cycle. And it's similar in a sense to the pill, right, in that um, what the pill does is it disables healthy reproductive functioning in women. I'm not quite as dogmatic on the pill as Mary Harrington is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually, like, I use hormonal contraceptions. I think that they are useful. I think the primary thing that hormonal contraception is useful for is birth spacing, because it is bad for you, particularly if you're having C-sections, to have babies really close together. But what the but what the pill does do, like, by design, is, like, disable healthy functioning. And I wonder if to some extent, you know, to the extent to which they work, which as discussed, they don't, but like the, the, these pills are also to some extent designed to do the same thing. They're designed to numb the feedback on what your, how your life is making you feel. Yeah. Well, think even things like social anxiety mm. is a cue, you know, it's telling you, you know, you haven't practiced this enough or you're not good at, good at this, or there's something about this situation which you need to get more comfortable with. And now we're getting advertised, uh, you know, medication for social anxiety. And it's become like a disorder that can be part of your identity. Whereas I think that's like an important signal to tell you where you need to work on your resilience. And, and same with other things like um, if you're feeling anxious, but also if you're feeling lonely, and again, you download a therapy app and chat to a therapist every day, you're not listening to the signal and the signal is telling you you need to go out and speak to people and face some discomfort. Um, so yeah, that's a, like such a good point about the pill. It's like all of these medications are kind of numbing the normal human experience, which then leads, puts you in a position where you have to pay for more intervention because your signals are, you've messed them up and you can't read how you're feeling anymore. And um, like logging off as well, being one of the top, <laughs> like top things to maximize your well-being. Um, and that doesn't seem to be, well, no, I obviously see that advised by like sensible mental health um, content creators. Um, but that's not part of the hot girl pills discourse, right? No, not at all. No. Uh, well, and if anything, it's like, you know, talk to your online community about how you feel. Or like, I see so many things like they'll be like, oh, we've created a new app for Gen Z's mental health where you can chat to other people 
or you can log how you feel or you can read like a positive affirmation. There's so many of these apps, like it's like a billion dollar market and it's like, okay, but you're still on your phone. <laughs> it's like, it can be as good as possible, but you're still talking to strangers on a screen. And um, so I, I don't take anyone, any of those companies seriously when the solution is like, still be on your phone. Or it's like yeah, Instagram, but for mental health, it's just mm. bullshit. It doesn't work. Let's talk about um, body image in relation to social media, because that also is, a, I think, a big part of what's feeding into young women in particular being so distressed by, by using, by looking at screens all day. Body image, and I would also say facial image. Uh, so I, I don't think older generations realise how much girls and young women obsess over their faces now and look at their faces because they're growing up with cameras on their phones, filters, editing apps. I mean, they are obsessing over their appearance for hours and hours a day and incentivized to do that. Um, and also seeing, obviously, influencers who've edited themselves, who, who are using TikTok filters that are kind of like undetectable. So not only are you obsessing over your face and body, but you're seeing perfect, unrealistic um, virtual avatars of other people and comparing yourself to them. Um, so, you know, I, I often cringe when I hear about unrealistic beauty standards and they're just, you know, some people will call like being thin an unrealistic beauty standard. <laughs> you know, that makes me cringe, but I do think, you know, it's impossible now to meet some of the ideals that are getting pushed on us. So if you look at, say, um, Kim Kardashian, a selfie of hers, she literally looks like an avatar. She, she doesn't look, look like a real person. But we, we're so used to seeing her face that we, we think it's kind of normal. But if you kind of, even um, 20 years ago, saw her face, you would be like, that's like a cartoon. Um, and you think of not just the young girls inundated with it, but the young boys and men seeing that all of the time that is the new beauty ideal and it's literally impossible without editing apps or cosmetic surgery kim kardashian's um hit waist ratio is insane oh i know God, she yeah. says that she hasn't had surgery on her bum i think she does admit to having surgery elsewhere yeah um and didn't she have like an x-ray or something on camera to choose <laughs> to prove that she didn't have <laughs> like silicon in her bum but she clearly has had something like it oh also because you can also see across time that she's physically changed surely she's had a bbl has she admitted to that or no she's not admitted to it no oh god that's she does also do i shouldn't know this i can't believe i know this but she <laughs> does also do an incredible amount of like weight training yeah so i think that she does have like massive strong glutes yeah um <laughs> so you know you want like someone to rescue you from a burning building kim might be able yeah to um but but clearly the whole the whole thing is 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 one incredibly expensive and two artificial and three as you say like it, even seeing her in the flesh she wouldn't quite look like that because so much of it is down to filters and like well that's the thing about it everything. is it actually a lot of a lot of the popular cosmetic surgeries among young women uh, actually look better online than they do in real life. Yeah. So women are like prioritizing how they look in case someone takes a picture of them or they need to take a selfie and almost in a way sacrificing how they look in real life for that. So, you know, when you see like Instagram face in real life, it's very jarring. Um, 
if, if someone has fillers, you can really notice it. I sat next to a woman um, recently at a coffee shop in Soho who looked who who I recognize from Instagram. I don't use Instagram very much. I mean, like the podcast is on Instagram. Yeah. I'm trying to trying to spread the gospel, but um <laughs> otherwise I don't really use it. Um but I but I did know this woman because to the extent I use it is to look at fashion. And she and so I recognized her and she looked really strange in real life. Like she's a very beautiful woman, obviously, but in, in real life she was like she doesn't actually look like she's had that many fillers online but then in person you can immediately tell that she's had fillers and she's all kind of like like a swollen like she's like yeah. a balloon like she's all shiny and swollen and like pretty but weird yeah there's something like uh in human nature where we can just sense you know that's not the proportions of your face yeah um, yeah it's, it's got uncanny valley vibes yeah yeah but, instagram face but yeah. if you if you took a really naturally kind of beautiful girl and you took a picture of her next to someone who's had a lot of fillers and cosmetic surgeries, or got the Instagram face, uh, in a photo, the, it does a disservice to the naturally pretty girl and makes the girl with Instagram face look uh, amazing because all of those exaggerated features look great on camera. And so it, it's kind of a weird scenario where you know, young women are, are choosing to look better online. And even things like BBLs look better on Instagram than they do in real life. They look kind of really disproportionate in real life. Lip fillers look better online. They tend to look um, stranger when you see them in person. Obviously, some are done well, but all of these women who've kind of gone too far with it, they still look good on their Instagram. The spectator got me to write a piece recently about plastic surgery, which meant that I actually went and looked at like plastic surgery TikTok, which I would not normally look at. And um, it's really interesting how um, how plastic surgery trends make everyone ethnically ambiguous. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's particularly striking with noses, where you have East Asian women often actually having their noses like. I like uh, made bigger. Very. They tend to have smaller noses that they want to make be, make more European, and then say um, Middle Eastern women want to have their noses straightened if they have a, a kind of Roman nose. Um, I mean, that's one example of the European ideal being preferable. But it's not always the European ideal that's preferable. It's like you take different, like the sexiest features yeah. and then, of every yeah. group and put them in the same figure, which basically looks like Kim Kardashian, who is very yes. ethnically ambiguous. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's, it is a Kardashian face. Um, but I think what happens is if it's almost strange if you take, um, if you exaggerate each feature, make each feature perfect, that's when you end up with a strange Instagram face because you need a bit of imperfection uh, in, in a, for someone to be kind of uh, naturally beautiful. They do need some flaws. And when you see a face that is like a virtual avatar, you know, I think a lot of people would describe like Kim Kardashian as like sexy or hot, but is she like beautiful or, or like pretty in the sense, in a human sense? Um, I think it's a really different um, like conception of what's attractive. Yeah, I mean, well, Kim is really like doubling down on the uh, uh, the the sexy look, I guess, because it makes her money. There was. Uh, an episode of Chris Williamson's um, Modern Wisdom podcast uh, 
just recently with a researcher called Tracy uh, Tracy Valencourt, just Canadian researcher. I'm going to try really hard to get her on the show because she's she's so good, and she specialises in female intersexual competition. Oh yeah, yeah. the way the ways that women are aggressive to one another. Mm-hmm. And two things I took away from that episode, which stuck in my mind. One, um, uh, not relevant to the Instagram thing, but very interesting. Um, that uh, on men's sports teams, the most a successful player tends to also be the most popular player among teammates, whereas on female sports teams, the opposite tends to be true. Not that not that the best players are the least popular, but they're very rarely the most popular. There's normally actually because of because women tend to want to kind of exert more egalitarianism in single sex groups. There's a tendency to kind of tear down the really successful players or the really accomplished individuals or whatever um and so they actually they actually pay a social penalty for being really good at the sport um the other interesting thing i learned was that um women also are very down on other women being too sexually provocative in how they dress so she spoke about doing um studies where you'd get like a very beautiful woman um to come and interact with the study participants and in one circumstance she was dressed modestly but still very beautiful and then in another circumstance she was dressed really sexily sexy and provocatively the women felt like neutral or positive about her when she was dressed modestly and felt extremely negatively towards her when she was dressed really provocatively yeah like they they, women women slut shame really hard (laughs) they do and they say their regard for a woman who's super provocatively dressed like plummets um which is very interesting when it comes to someone like kim because she's she clearly is like super that's kind of her thing to be super yeah. sexy didn't she come bring out a bra recently which had like nipples like i haven't seen just you know so much about <laughs> i know i know i don't know how um, it's partly from working for the male but it's yeah. no it's, it's also just my own uh, my own shameful preoccupations she brought out this bra recently which has like nipples like stuck on so that you so it basically makes it look under a t-shirt like you're not wearing a bra but of course you are so the impression that it gives is that you just have like perkier boobs and you really do but that you're not wearing a bra which is kind of clever but anyway she like that's her whole thing being super super sexy and so it's interesting that women don't like hate her more like why are so many women following her on instagram i guess is the I don't mystery. know. I don't really because know. Because I've, I've often heard like about other celebrities, like Taylor Swift. I've heard people say, oh, people love Taylor Swift because she's like very pretty. She's like beautiful, but she's not kind of like aggressively sexual. And she is kind of not threatening to young women. So Kim Kardashian is, is kind of the aberration. I don't know why she's had this. Imp- and also, I don't know why it's her face that's kind of been the replica Instagram face. I wonder if it's just timing. You know, she was just there when Instagram took off. I don't know, but it's strange. I guess there's a difference between following someone on Instagram and being friends with them. So I wouldn't be surprised if Kim has problems with like female friendships because um, women don't like this sexually provocative stuff. Um, But I guess what, what do you get from why do I look at pictures of Kim? Well, I mean, I for research, obviously. Yeah, no, but, like, but she has. She does. She does have like a. There's like mesmerizing something mesmerizing yeah. about her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's I guess because it's so aspirational. Because you're like, this is what men want. This is what I should aspire to. Yeah, I also think there's something about 
you know how perfect she looks as in how like proportionally perfect and like virtual avatar she looks that it's almost like we're fascinated by it we're intrigued by it um but i don't it, it's kind of, it sounds kind of weird but you don't really view her as like human it's almost like she is an avatar she is something different um so maybe it's that kind of curiosity and there's something very entrancing about looking at someone who's incredibly beautiful even if you don't even if you're not sexually interested in them um i mean like well, this is this is a di- maybe a different impulse, but it's like how a beautiful child or a beautiful animal or something, you're like, wow, you just can't kind of take your eyes off them. Even though it has nothing to do with sexual desire, maybe there's that same kind of like magnetic effect. I think that's why, you know, the, these kind of platforms are so bad for uh, girls and young women because, uh, you know, I, I hear people say, well, girls shouldn't look at stuff like that on Instagram. You know, they shouldn't look at Instagram influences. They shouldn't look at things that make them feel bad about themselves. But we are drawn to it. You know, we're all drawn to look at like beautiful or like sexually provocative things, anything that kind of captures your attention. And if you look at like a young girl's Instagram, it will just be full of the most like exaggerated kind of pornified influences and celebrities because there's something about it that's, that's um intriguing um but unfortunately I, I do think it's terrible for young girls who who scroll through that for like five hours a day and then go look in the mirror and see such a contrast advice i once heard from a um cosmetic dermatologist who um who who is also like big on uh youtube um is uh don't look at yourself too closely in the mirror this is her advice to women who um, were struggling with acne or wrinkles or whatever, because um, she said, no one else looks at you that close. Like, don't don't like do this, you know, with your magnifying mirror and be like, oh, my blemishes, because that's not a realistic standard to, to hold yourself to. And yet so many like that's so normal now to be incredibly minutely um, critical of your own appearance. Well, yeah, that's the, what I was going to say is like no, mm. no one analyzes uh, each individual bit of your face. They just kind of look at your face um mm. whereas girls now like if you go on tiktok it's like okay if your if your lip is this shape then it could be better if your nose is slightly like this or if your eyebrows they need to be lifted and it's like very specific adjustments um and it's it's really sad because there's so many young women who are like uniquely beautiful you know they're different in some way um and they're kind of funneling themselves into the same face you know you see the same makeup looks over and over again the same face repeated um and when you see someone who's slightly different who does have kind of like in, imperfections it's almost more striking now because it's like okay you, you don't have that same copy and paste instagram face. what do you think is the remedy to this because one remedy I've heard proposed which I suspect you disagree with but I want to find out (laughs) is to be um sort of didactically telling girls that this is not healthy that you should have say body image lessons in um, PHSE um at school um to be sort of in the same way that we say that sometimes that this is a response to porn culture is to say look porn isn't realistic Instagram isn't realistic, just like kind of to tell young people to let them know. And and even to assert as well, like big is beautiful, to sort of assert, no, actually, like you are wrong about what you think is beautiful. 
um, here's what's actually beautiful. This strikes me as uh, futile. <laughs> yes. Well, I would, if I would personally say that, you know, young women know it's not real. But a lot of young women know they can pick up, you know, that's cosmetic surgery, that's an editing app, that's a filter. It doesn't make a difference. It still makes you feel shit because you're like, okay, I, I still don't look, that's still like a way I could look um, if I put in enough effort or whatever. And it's still a comparison. So you can know someone's edited themselves with an editing app, but you still, you take off your filter and you look at your actual face and you're still disappointed. So I don't think, you know, saying it's not real would help um I, I think it's literally just about less time on screens because it's completely normal for girls to um you know worry about how they look and also to aspire for beauty and to be interested in looking more attractive you know we, we shouldn't be demonizing that um but it's it's the amount of time so it's like okay i'm sure it's fine for girls to um, kind of look at a makeup ad and see how they could do their makeup but it's not fine to be served that for five hours a day relentlessly and the algorithm is making it more extreme each time and it's personalized to your unique insecurities so it's like um you know every adolescent girl is probably going to struggle with insecurity and want to look good but it's about you know, when does it get to the point where it's ridiculous, where, you know, she's thinking about her face for six hours a day or something. Um, so, yeah, I think less about telling girls this is bad and more about just getting girls off their screen and, you know, banning social media. If you're, you know, in early puberty and you're in that stage that is just so vulnerable to stuff like that, you should just not be anywhere near Instagram. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, paid subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>